Most Hollywood traditional celebrities probably envision their career as follows. Get a few roles as an extra, get your big break on a TV show, maybe make it into movies from there. Regardless of the specific route, it followed a structure that was oriented around Hollywood and the politics that are at play in that industry. Auditions, agents, PR teams, all of the staples of the famous quote-unquote experience. I think a turning point in this structure was when House of Cards started to sweep at the Emmys. This was something new and exciting as it came from a streaming service. It showed a departure from the classic cable TV work your way up model. While acting for a show or movie that's outside of the cable verse and instead on a streaming service was a foreign concept 10 years ago, now it's standard. But in 2020, we are now even farther from this. The ecosystem is different now, to say the least. Here are some numbers. Pay TV households peaked in the US in 2010 with 105 million. Now, in 2020, that number is 82 million. So maybe you're thinking to yourself, 82 million is a huge number regardless. Well, look at any study showing the viewing habits of Gen Alpha, Gen Z, or Millennials, and it tells a clear story. It's all about streaming services and YouTube. The most influential celebrities for Gen Z are not actresses who, I don't know, played a role of a daughter on a cable TV show. Rather, they're people who built their fame and influence through social media apps and platforms built from user-generated content. David Dobrik, Addison Rae, Charlie D'Amelio, the usual names I can cite as examples. So if you are a traditional celebrity who's built a name for yourself through television, how do you adapt to this new entertainment ecosystem we see across YouTube, Facebook videos, TikTok, and more. Well, I had the pleasure of chatting with Gwen Miller, who has used her Hollywood background in order to help traditional celebrities with the transition and execution across digital. She is the VP of content at Kin Community, a digital entertainment company that specializes in women's lifestyle content. Importantly, they specialize in celebrity-driven digital content. They've launched shows with Tia Maori, Derek Huff, Jordan Sparks, and more. She is brilliant. Please enjoy this discussion. Gwen, as we talk about the creator space and traditional Hollywood, I know for you, you were pretty deeply immersed in Hollywood, and then you made the transition over to the YouTube first. So I'd love for you to speak a little bit about that transition, but also what was really the light bulb moment of, wow, the creator space is going to be the next TV? Well, I mean, look, kid, like, not to say I'm old, but when I graduated college, literally YouTube was in its guy at the zoo phase. 
literally, I graduated when YouTube started. So it wasn't like I was in, I was in film school being like, geez, you know, what, what I'm going to be doing for a career is going to be video on the interwebs. Like, uh, I remember the, fr I, I watched my first viral video in college. Um, and it was the Numa Numa guy. I'm not sure if you're too young for this, but you know, it's, it, it's like literally it was emailed to me as a web link and it was like a tiny small box in the upper left hand corner of a blank web page with no margins. So it was just like crammed in the upper left corner and it was like the most revolutionary thing I'd ever seen. But I didn't think of the, see that and go, oh geez, that's a career right there. Like the, the Numa Numa guy could make money off of doing stupid Numa Numa songs. I can make money by having him do stupid Numa. Like this wasn't even like a career. So I as well came into Hollywood being like, I'm going to be working in Hollywood. And I, split, I spent the first good portion of my career in Hollywood, working with celebrities, doing the, doing the Hollywood thing. And, and then, you know, um, about the time, this would have been 2010, 2011, like, you know, YouTube started to professionalize just a little bit more. And at about the same time, I, I, you know, I was seeing my friends, if they had what we called webisodes back then on the resume, they would hide them because be like, oh, this is, you know, like, this will hurt my chances. And I also started to think of the stuff I, I was working in game shows at the time, which talk about a dying part of a dying industry. Um, and I, 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 I was working on the being like, you know, it would be more fun if this was online and you could interact. And I was like, oh, I'm in the wrong part of the business. Like, all I'm doing right now is filling up the cookie cutter that we've been filling up for 40 years. And that's boring. Like, there's no rules over here, but that's going to be interesting. So I, I very aggressively made the switch. I even took a step back to be able to make the switch. And, you know, I kind of haven't looked back since then. And I have, it is very, uh, it's been very funny for me more recently in what I do at Kin, which is we do digital content, but we do it to traditional celebrities. So, like, I thought I'd left the world of agents and all that sort of stuff, and I feel like it's coming back full circle, and we're hitting, you know, we're heading towards a synergy point where TV is digital, digital is TV. But I was like, I'm done with TV, and I was like, well, no, TV is digital, digital is TV. It's all back full circle. Exactly. And yeah, I guess really speaking to the fact that now it's just really blended of what is a traditional celebrity, what is an internet celebrity, kind of just seems to be the same definition regardless. Um, and on that, I would imagine that in your conversations with talent, well, of course, you and I, we fully get it that, you know, creators are celebrities. You look at their reach and beyond rivaling, I think it trumps anything you're really going to see with most television. But I wonder if for whether it's talent or maybe even some of the suits in Hollywood, they still look at it and they go, okay, YouTube, that's a, that's a kid in his basement uh, with photo booth open taking a video. Um, have you noticed that at all be the perception or are we right now at a turning point in 2020 where everyone is on board and they understand, okay, wow, this really is the future of entertainment? I think everyone knows it's the future of entertainment, but we're still in a, 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 a kind of a world where the old modes of like transmission of media are still there slowly dying but they're still there and that will be and that's an age difference thing so there is still there is still a very um common 
disparity between what is a digital talent and what is a uh, kind of a traditional talent simply because of the age group difference. Like the average age on TV, you're lucky if your average age on TV is 45. Most of them are like 55 plus, right? Um, whereas, you know, digital media skews a lot younger. We need to look out because we kind of, we float in the middle. So our woman is 25 plus. So we have a lot of 35 year olds and that pushes just far enough up that like our content can play either place. We have content running on TV and we have it running on digital and it works both ways for us. Um, but most, most digital content can't do that. So you still see the gatekeepers on the traditional modes of distribution still haven't had a great experience putting most digital talent on, on television. I think that it has gone away from this kind of outlook of, oh, that's because digital talent aren't as good. I think there's more an understanding now is like, no, you're just programming to do to two different audience bases. And there is a knowledge that the television audience base is going to, you know, get smaller and smaller and smaller until it's entirely gone. So I think there has definitely been a lot of internal interest turning as you see all these major media companies reorganizing around OTT and digital because they really realize that while they can still earn money off the traditional for a while, it cannot be their go-forward future plan. Interesting. And then with that, uh, I guess using your knowledge and your skills and experience within traditional television, obviously you can't take that exact template and then put it over to digital. You know, you don't see, oh, actually, I'm sorry, let me correct myself. You do see, but it doesn't always work out where you can tell like, okay, somebody who was, I don't know, maybe working at GSN, the game show network, they masterminded this, not having any idea of the different platforms. So I, I guess, could you speak to that, that misunderstanding, but also how the template of what really works is altered for the digital space? Yeah, I mean, this is what I spent most of my digital career doing. Because I came from television and spent the first part of my digital career working for the digital arms of traditional media companies, I've spent most of my career training TV people that know digital is different. And I think a lot of the misperception comes in that as soon as it was very apparent that the digital side was desirable, TV people started wanting to, move, wanting to move in. But they had this misperception that all that digital was missing was a little good old uh, TV production values. And it, it's how we're, how we're trained. You know, we went to TV film school, we got trained in these tropes of what good quality is. And what you have to realize in, uh, in, in digital is, yes, there is such a thing as good quality in digital in a way that you can make your content be high quality, but it does not always rely on those tropes. One of the examples I always like slap TV producers' hands are they want to do walk-ups. Like, you know, like, oh, you're having someone over to help redo a, your living room. You'll show them, like, first minute of that video is them walking down the sidewalk, knocking on the door. The, the, the people inside the house open the door, have the very awkward fake conversation of, hi, how are you? Thanks for coming. In digital, you don't need that. It's keeping you from content. In TV, it didn't add anything, for heaven's sakes. It just, you didn't have the information we had. People had less choices. They weren't, they weren't like, uh, you know, I'm flipping, I'm changing this off because you walked for a minute. But in digital, we see that happening, and so we stop doing that. But it's very hard to break these habits from television producers from doing because they have these things in their mind, is this is how you make good content, and audiences are going to react to that. No, audiences are going to react 
to, to authenticity and you hide your good production values in really amazing audio quality and really good picture quality, but heck sakes, do not give me a crane shot if you're attempting to actually do an intimate conversation with your audience. Like anything that screams, like the audience isn't stupid, they know what looks produced. And if it screams that there's 20 people standing around watching this person like bare their soul, like you totally ruin the illusion. You really can't do it. So I think a lot of these changes have come about, A, because of the medium and the platform and the links and all the stuff that we know, but also just because we have more data. We know these things. Not to, not to, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some shade right now. And I, I, Please. I, I, I adore I'm podcasts. I adore <laughs> podcasts. Podcasts do not have the little level of data at this point as we do in digital video. And I think it shows sometimes. Like, I love your, your intro was really nice and short. Uh, you know, but there are podcasts literally 10 minutes in. You're like, I still have no idea what this, ep- this, this episode is about. And I think you get away with that in podcasts because there's nothing explicitly showing you in the data that you lost X percentage points of your audience by doing that. Because as long as you have a big enough top of the funnel you don't know how much you're losing and how much bigger your actual audience could be because you don't have that data that we have in digital video that shows, oh, I could 10x my audience right now if I just didn't do that stupid thing in the intro. Yeah, and you know, this was actually on my notes here, so I love that you brought this up, is the value to data, and I know that's something that you've really taken into your career of, all right, we're given comprehensive analytics here, We need to utilize this information correctly. So I guess on that, there's so many different approaches to looking at the data. I think sometimes people just upload what they upload and they might not really analyze, okay, why does this skew older? Why does this video maybe skew younger? Why is this uh, weirdly popular in the Philippines? You know, so on and so forth. But with your background in traditional television, how do you use uh, clearly the value? Of course, that could be like Nielsen or something else of, oh, wow, the, the metrics were given. Oh, you made a face when I said Nielsen. So I imagine there's some passionate thoughts there. But um, all this to say, what is the correct way to look at the data and have that guide the content that you're making on digital? Look, creatives have a very valid, viscerally bad reaction to data. And that becomes from years and years of Nielsen. Like, it's, you know, you know, they always say that as soon as you're being watched, like, it changes the results. And that's all that Nielsen is. It's a panel of people who know they're being watched and their viewing habits. So it's not comprehensive of your entire viewing audience. It's just a, a supposedly random selection of people, and who knows how accurate that is, self-selection who's even willing to do this and you know panel data is just flawed in and of itself and it's self-selected and it just you know what revolutionized me and how I view the world getting into digital is suddenly was like wait I have data for every single person who has watched this content and exactly what they do for every second of the video like it's just mind-boggling nothing we could have imagined 20 to 30 years ago like this didn't exist And, you know, I started really digging into data in my career because not very many people are actually doing it when I I started doing it in in digital. Like, it was just so overwhelming. I think that is the problem with data in digital is there's so much of it, it can be very tempted to not look at any of it just because you don't know where to start. 
And, and I, I do think there becomes a, a myopic view on overall views because that's the easy thing to understand. The problem with that is that takes it does not always viral views do not translate into sustained audience growth on a channel. That is, there is there is very little relationship there. What I always say is you should be trying to up your averages more than you should be trying to go after the one-off viral, uh, viral hits. Because to your point, the audience might be entirely different. They're entirely different. Doesn't mean they're going to stick around. So it's very important to us. I say have a holistic view of your data. You need to spend the time learning what your data actually means and learning, you know, and if I had to say one thing, like if you only looked at one thing in your data, it would be split your views out between subscriber and unsubscribers. If you're going to look at the success of a video, you need to know how it performed with your subscribers as well as unsubscribers. And both are important, but you can't have a video that like your subscribers hate because you, it's very easy to do that. You can do a viral video on a topic that has nothing to do with your channel. Your subscribers might hit it, but the views are going to be great because it happened to hit on a topic that, you know, other people on that platform like. The problem is going to be your subscribers unsubscribe because you made a video they hate. And the unsubscribers will look at your channel. They're not going to stick around because it has different content on it. So you're always needing to look at, okay, in this video, did my subscribers come in at least average? Like they didn't hate it. They're here solidly for me. Great. Good to go. Then you look at your unsubscribe views. And with your unsubscribe views, it, it, these are also important. There's a, a lot of channels who will come to me like, I'm not growing. And that's typically because they're doing a really great a job at super serving their audience, their current audience, but they're not pulling. There's only a few levers you can pull to grow. And if they're not pulling them, you're not going to grow. So that's why I always say is if you're only going to look at one thing, yeah, it can be views, but never look at overall views because that number is useless. It's better to split it up into how are your super fan subscribers reacting to your content and how are you doing at pulling in new people and a new audience in? Completely. Yeah, because at the end of the day, what really makes this sustainable is having a core audience. Where I think there are many creators who have a significant following, I would put huge air quotes behind that, because really, I, I don't know if they're fully accounting for just how well the algorithm is treating their videos, and they don't realize, oh wow, I might not actually be pulling a real core base. This is more maybe just different one-off viewers per all of these. So in your approach with talent, this goes right back to what we were saying about authenticity being so, so important. When you are working with A-list stars who might be really used to, and again, this is, I don't know this end of the industry you do. So you speak on this if I'm completely off, but Maybe a little bit more, all right, I need to really think about how much I divulge here, how much I actually tell my audience, my posture, my composure. Whereas as we know through the influencer space, really it's that authenticity, it's being raw, it's being candid that makes people go, oh wow, I cannot wait to see what they have to say next. So I guess what is the coaching process like when you're bringing through talent really the importance of being so authentic in their delivery? I think the first thing is you destroy all their media training. Uh, I think that's the number one thing that uh, screams inauthenticity. I would never tell a talent, like, you have to bear every piece of your life to, like, there are things you're going to want to keep private. But you need to create, I don't want to say the illusion, but there needs to be things in your life you're willing to be transparent about. 
Like, there needs to be things that you're willing to just to talk honestly about. You know, uh, whether it's some, you know, whether it's something, you know, a fear of yours or different things, you know, talking about a funny story with you and the kids. Like, they need to feel like they're getting parts of your life. And even when you're doing that, I have a lot of talent who, when they start out, they just, they're very media trained. So people will be like, you sound scripted. I'd be like, I promise you, we did not script them. We had a list of questions. We sat down and asked them, but they're so well trained that it comes out like they're reading from a teleprompter. Um, and, 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 you know, that's how they're taught in PR to deal with, you know, nosy reporters. And, and I get that, but when it's your, when it's your fan base, like, they really want to feel that you're authentically just sitting down and, like, yeah, flipped on the camera and I'm going to tell my best friend a story. And it really needs to come across like that. So we work we work very hard with our talent to kind of get that more natural tone and composure. And really, we always emphasize it's just about storytelling. It's on the little details. It's not, you don't need to always have that big explosive story about something traumatic that happened to you. Like, it's just taking a simple story and telling it so you can feel the things that you felt. They, they, they can smell the things that you smell. It smelt, smelled. Or, like, just you're walking down the hallway and, you know, dropping dirty socks. Like, every, you know, like, it's the little details that really count. And it really comes down to our, I, I, like, I, I like to tell them, like, this is you, it's storytelling. It's like, it's like, it's like writing a script. Like, this is the script of your life. And you're going to tell every little detail about it. And that really does help uh, cut through a lot of like the trite platitudes and sayings that they're trying to use. I'm always like, never tell, tell us a moral, tell us the story. We will get the moral. We are smart. Your audience is smart. Tell us the story. You don't need to then finish up with five minutes of this is the lesson I learned. It's going to come across as inauthentic and patronizing. Well, and when there ever is any level of pushback with the audience, uh, I'm sorry, with the creator, are you able to then maybe pull comments from the audience where they say, oh, wow, I always loved this celebrity watching them on this channel. Uh, we'll keep it very vague because you don't have to single out any talent. But um, do you ever show them like, look, I know you may have been a little apprehensive about how this was going to resonate with your fans, but look at these comments. They loved, they didn't know all of this about you. Oh, that's just, that's just basic human psychology. Like we send our 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 partners and talent, uh, a, essentially uh, every single month we rock them through exactly how the channel is performing. We walk them through the data. We show them the things we're seeing in the data, and that positive reinforcement is very important. It's showing in the comments when people are like, "I just you know I love that morning routine when you rolled right out of bed." without any makeup on. Because, you know, that's a tough thing for, for talent to just be like, I'm going to be on camera without any makeup on. I guarantee you those are the highlights for any for any audience. Like, they love seeing the authentic, like, this is what you look like right when you wake up. But that is a very psychologically heavy thing for someone who has been camera trained and used to having, you know, a couple hours of glam before they get on camera. And it is very important to show them how the audience connects with them when they do something that does, you know, uh, is more vulnerable for them with the audience, where they're seeing a little bit more of their real self or, 
they're telling that story, which, you know, is a, is a little self-deprecating. Like, there's a lot of stuff that we can pull out of the, you know, from the audience where they're like, well, I really related to that. Thank you for sharing that. And that does go a long way. And what is great about digital is we have that constant loop of feedback from the audience that they really don't get in their day jobs and in regular and regular media. Wow. Yeah, 100%. Um, on that, I, I'm very curious now that you're bringing up the value of data, though I know I for listeners, you couldn't see, but we're Skyping. But when I said Nielsen, uh, I got a, a face that clearly it, it evokes something uh, viscerally very negative when I said, okay, you know, a, a thick packet of numbers is probably what comes to mind. So how do you approach data in the data conversation in a way that is so distanced from what a lot of people might be, you know, a, a little off put from the word Nielsen or the very Hollywood approach to, hey, these are the numbers and approach it as such? Well, I would argue the problem with Nielsen was there was not enough data. You had one number and you rose and fell on that number and who knew how accurate that number is. Uh, God bless Nielsen. Love them. <laughs> Don't at me, Nielsen. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think that was problematic for a lot of producers because there was not really, there was no learnings that you got from that. There was too many variables within an entire show to be able to pinpoint that with the lower Nielsen rating, it means X for me. Like, it, it, it means nothing at that point. It just means your show is canceled and, you know, you don't get that back. Um, I, I think the real key is when I approach, you know, television producers who I, I'm kind of converting into digital producers, is really working with them to learn the data so that they realize it's not their enemy, it's their friend. Like, what it is, it's your audience talking to you in code, and you just have to listen. And it doesn't mean you have to do what everything your, 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 your audience says. Like, that would be like go taking every suggestion that comes to the comment section, which I would never advise you do because people be crazy. Um, but it is, you do have a lot more feedback on what they're connecting to and what they want to see more of and what they want to see less, less of. And they're voting with their feet. Because as we know from every study ever done that people will, will lie when they tell you stuff. So I take stuff in the comment section with a grain of salt because people don't really know what they want or what they really like. But if you look at the actual data, you can see, oh, they said this, but this is how they acted. And you can then act on how they acted. And what I love about digital is you have such a quick feedback loop and you're doing so much content, you can continually hone that until you're making better and better content. And every creator wants to make better and better content. So if you can kind of get 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 that perspective for them that hey these are you know things that you can use to make your content better, but neither is it a blunt instrument that it's hammering over your head and being like you must you must cyborg your way through this content and it's going to destroy your creative vision. No, it helps focus your creative vision. Right. Yeah. And you know, I this would be great advice I think for the many number of creator celebrities or celebrity creators, you can flip it either way, that are now coming to YouTube and trying to build out a channel. Um, and on that, it is so interesting because I feel like we're at a point now where there's such a staggering number of A-list celebrities who clearly somebody has told them, hey, you know, YouTube, this is a really great way to engage. They may also whisper TikTok, but I think YouTube is one that we see a really heavy focus on. Um, though it's interesting, I, you know, I think looking at some of these channels where it'll be A-list celebrities who I know just a few years ago, if their name is attached to a TV show or a movie, it's going to be big. 
I look to the channel, it's like, oh wow, they're getting like 150,000 views on average when you take out the anomalies. So uh, what do you think the, the common missteps in making the transition are for most A-listers? Well, I mean, first of all, it, it also comes back to an audience makeup again. Like it depends on what, you know, you have to look at what age is the audience that actually truly knows who, who, who they are. And for a lot of stars, like, they've unfortunately just aged out of the platform. You know, I work with the talent who are at the very top end of, you know, what we can really make viable on, on, on YouTube. So there is somewhat just a demographic shift. I think, you know, uh, I think that was part of the problem with lovely Quibi that just went under, is that they were bringing in talent and directors who were appealing to people my age and older. But what Gen Zer cares about these people? Nobody, right? So I think there is, again, the assumption that because they're big here, they're going to be big there, which is not always the case. There are, there are, but there are still those who should theoretically be able to make the transition that still can't. And a, a part of that is YouTubing is a skill set. It truly is. That is not well organized, but the ability to be magnetic on this one-to-one -one camera is entirely different than the skill set it is to be on a television show or a movie. Like, entirely different skill sets. And, you know, the gatekeepers are entirely different. The gatekeepers on YouTube are the audience. The gatekeepers in Hollywood are, you know, frankly old white men. And they have their certain filters they're putting through that does not necessarily mean that the people on the platform are going to connect with that or that they have the personalities that it takes to break through on YouTube. They might be really great if you give them a character and have them play that on TV, but that does not mean that if they're authentically playing themselves and have to have 20-minute conversations with their audience every day for 52 weeks a year, that they can sustain that level of interest with, with their talent. Uh, you know, I don't think a lot of celebrities actually get to that point, frankly. They come on YouTube and they're like, great, they treat it like TV, let's do a season, and then we'll think about it. And they're so sporadically on the platform that they just never really build that loyal, loyal audience base that knows I'm going to come back every Tuesday and get content. They're like, maybe this A-list celebrity will post occasionally, and if I run across it on my feed, maybe I'll watch it. But that's not how the platform works. So they're just trying to treat the platform like TV, and that is going to put them at a disadvantage from the gazillion million other people on the platform who are treating YouTube as YouTube and optimizing voraciously as a full-time job to get there. Yeah, and it's clearly what you're speaking to as well is how consistency is so important on YouTube. I think it's the single factor that serves the algorithm the most kindly. Um, so is that in your conversation with talent or do you often have to reiterate like, listen, there is a schedule and maybe we're no longer in the world of like, hey, there's a pilot and there's a season and you know, you're employed for nine months where it is such a weird always on universe here and maybe can be a little bit more stagnant in Hollywood. So I, I guess, how is that conversation? Because it does seem like maybe a very foreign approach to those who are used to the more Hollywood cycle. I mean, you know, there is a reason we, you know, a lot of talent sign with us, and that is because we're full service from top to bottom. Like, we need a day of their lives every month. 
like and then they're good so like at the end of the day like you know uh, you know obviously outside of shooting they're doing that stuff with us like coming up with creative content and working on social assets and stuff like that but at the end of the day it's my they're carrying a fraction of the workload that an actual youtuber is carrying like it's not even close there's an entire team behind them that's really doing the heavy lifting all they have to really do is come up with great creative and what do they want to share with their with the with the world and then they show up and they can talk from their soul. But all the heavy lifting of the camera, the editing, the social media, like we're giving them an ass packet of like 20 assets to use. Like that's all done by our team. So it is a nice symbiosis there being like, we just need you to be creative and to communicate honestly with your audience. We'll take care of the rest of that. So that helps a lot with that, that kind of burden. But it's also, you know, like it's, it's every month. It's not like we're going to shoot 12 shoot days in the summer and then air that all year long. Like, can you imagine if we'd done that like last year and then in COVID hit and I had was sitting on six months of like, you know, like pre-pandemic content, that would have been like the weirdest thing. On the Nightmare. Yeah. yeah. So like we have to keep pretty, you know, we can't get that far ahead. So that's just the thing of explaining to them. It's like, this is how much time commitment is, but it's kind of spread out over an indefinite long-term period of time. Yeah, and with even the approach of doing it, hey, once a month and you have a great creative, I'd imagine now and then you also have to broach, you know, on YouTube, you do need to keep certain things fresh. And I know this is something that you've talked about as well, where you've seen creators maybe make the missteps of incorrectly following the data to go like, okay, this series works. So I just need to milk this cow endlessly. And then in the end, it's like, oh, wow, I've lost a lot of people because things got stale. Um, so are the creators very understanding of, all right, I might have to try different series on the shows and different, uh, you know, completely different content styles in order to make the audience engaged? Yeah, I, I said from the very beginning of like, we're going to do a content like, there will be something every single month that's experimental. Because we've got to always be trying something new. And we will not be chasing those viral hits. If we get one, great. But we are not going to then be like, every single piece of content is going to be that piece of content. And, and that's one of the reasons that I'm so keen on being like, look how your actual like subscriber base is reacting. Because you can keep those viral hits coming. Like, this is what kills off the most YouTubers. I won't name any names, but I'm thinking of some very specific people who literally like, you know, I can get a gazillion million views if all I do is these two, two formats. But if they had looked at their subscriber data, they would see that their subscriber views were going down because people were like, oh my God, this has been 10 weeks of the same joke. Like, but when it was, it's fresh people coming in every single time from the billion people in the world being like, oh my God, that's so funny. Like you can do the same format, the same bit over and over again. And for a while that's gonna work. And you're gonna feel like I just 10X what I can do here. But that's not long-term sustainable and those, you know, you look at the comment section, it's all like, oh, they're just totally selling out. They keep doing the same thing over and over again. I'm not getting the authentic them. They're just, you know, you can see the stress start coming into these creators' faces. You know, so fortunately for me, like, fortunately for our talents, they have me. Um, and I can really clearly set to them from the beginning of like, look, I'm going to level set with you. I'm going to tell you, like, when a video is good, even if it's not fine. Like, and we're going to put these things in that are going to be more viral every once in a while, like maybe once a month, but we're not going to make that every single week. Like you have to have a sustainable schedule 
and that is not a sustainable schedule. So I'm going to hype up that video that did nicely above average just as much as that video that did super above that, you know, like viral because it's doing more for our core audience. It's building subscriber loyalty. It's doing X, Y, and Z that we need it to do. It's carrying the water for us. And that is just as important as getting a bunch of new eyeballs into the channel who may or may not stay. Yeah, I love that. And you know, at the end of the day, if, if a YouTube channel is like a television show, you look at the YouTube channels that have been around thriving for 10 years. And I've always kind of looked at that through the lens of, wow, if this was a show that was going on for 10 years, I mean, what an anomaly. How many shows are going on for 10 years? Um, so when you're going to gather the audience and you really want to start forming a community there, how much of the approach is, hey, let's take uh, the audience that this celebrity already had Get them to be aware of these new videos that are being posted to YouTube and Facebook versus how much of it is, hey, listen, this is just a great personality. And I bet as soon as some people find this channel, whether they have any idea about your Hollywood background, they're going to be all in for the content. I, the, first, the first couple months of the show are very much driven by super fans who already know who they are. And this is how we kind of go around the typical uh, like YouTube growth story. I just did a bunch of research on this in the last couple weeks because I was really curious because I kind of done like 2014, I had started a project where I was looking at the rising stars of the platform right at that point. And I was like, it's been six years. I'm gonna go back and see like what it like, what was their actual lifespan? And I've always had this rule of thumb that most YouTube channels, it takes really three years for you to take off. When I mean take off where you really see that line, like you're steadily growing, but there's a certain point in your trajectory that you just like skyrocket up and you're actually at the size where like you can get brand deals. That typically takes most, most you know, channels that end up becoming successful somewhere around three years. It is like the first couple of years are a grind. We're able to circumvent that because our, our, our talent already have audiences that love them. They're just on other platforms. Now, you can't fully rely on that because if someone's not Instagram user, it doesn't mean they're a YouTube user. Like these platforms, and especially if you're a Facebook user, you're probably not a YouTube user. Like they're very distinct audiences. So you're not going to get a ton of push between um, the platforms. But what you see is that there is enough of a push from Instagram. It gets YouTube the starting kernel of data that there is interest. Like, that these people came in and they watched a significant portion of the video. Their retention data, their satisfaction data is really, really good. So that gives the YouTuber like, oh, maybe I'll test it out with other people. Most of your views are coming from those tests where they're, and they're figuring out who, who the people are that are going to be interested. So they get the kernel of the data, like, okay, I had a bunch of people come and watch this video. It did session starts, which is like YouTube's favorite thing. It got people on the platform. They all, all the people who were watching that came in have these characteristics in, in, in common. That gives me enough as a platform to go find other people and much quicker than if you're starting from scratch. So we see the algorithm kick in much quicker for our celebrity talent because they have a lot more data to work on much more quickly than a lot of homegrown channels. So the, those, but those first three months is usually them still finding people who recognize the celebrity's face. Like, they're like, oh my God, I didn't know Tia Murray had a YouTube channel. I'm going to watch this thing. You know, like, but they're coming in because they recognize who T is. After the three-month mark, you start picking up people who, in, in the algorithm, no idea who this chick is. They're just like, 
This girl's cool. She was a lot of fun. Uh, Jeannie, I love Jeannie Mai's mom. Jeannie Mai has a hilarious mom. Who's this Jeannie Mai person? Like, that's about the point you, we start seeing people come and be like, I don't know who you are, but you're amazing at this. And that is what we're really trying to eventually get to because these stars are famous. They got a big fan base. But if you truly want to have traction on the platform, you're going to have to attract people who have no the freak idea who they are. Right. Completely. Yeah. And, you know, I think to what you're saying, the other huge value of having at least a foundation of, oh, wow, this is someone recognizable is because I really do feel one of the most compelling things to a YouTube user who wants to find a new creator to start following is going to look and like, oh, wow, if there is a, a community here, if there are people in a really lively comment section, maybe a Patreon or a subreddit, uh, just really there's a congregation around this channel, then, oh, wow, I really want to be a part of this. But I think even on that to the foundation, you know, there are a lot of celebrities out there um, that I think if they went to YouTube, it might not really work because maybe their audience or the people who would go see them in a movie and a TV show, they really might not be too interested in that keen glimpse. I would question whether Tom Cruise, you know, may I, I wonder whether or not him going to YouTube, how that would really work out. Um, but on that, when you're at Canon, when you're really trying to focus on this is going to be a creator that is going to have such a large audience and that audience is going to grow. How are you vetting this out and how do you look for it to say, okay, this creator speaks to me on all levels that it's going to be long-term viable for something that's really going to grow and thrive on the platform? Uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot of it is you're going to just have to do a shoot day and test it. Like, a lot of times you really cannot for sure tell until you get them in front of that, that YouTube camera and have them stare deeply in the soul and be like, can you tell a story? Um, but there are certain things that you can up your chances. You can look at, you know, most of them have done some form of digital video. They've been on, you know, they, they've been on, you know, a, a late night show or they've, you know, they did, they've been on Vo a Vogue video or something like that. So there is some... Uh, some ways you can kind of kind of check personality on the platform and how people are reacting to them. We look at their their de their Instagram demographics to really see like where is their audience skewing. Do we think we can really convert them into a focused audience? Um, for us, you know, we kind of we have a, a lot of a kind of a signal boost from having a group of ch uh, channels that have very similar audiences, and it, that creates a very uh, great symbiosis within the algorithm that launches. So we have to have an audience that is fairly close when we're coming in. Like we're not launching male sports stars here. Like we concentrate on women who have audiences that are going to be women 25 plus. Like that is what our focus is. Um, and that works for us in the algorithm very, very well because they're very, they're similar. They're getting suggested video algorithm. It's just, it's just a whole thing. Uh, so we're looking at those demographics. We're also looking to make sure that, you know, that their audience is likely going to be interested in video because some audiences are really just there for the pretty pictures in, on Instagram and they're going to be very hard to convert into video viewers. So we're looking, do they already do video on their Instagram? How is their audience reacting to that video? So we're really kind of making sure that we're not getting false positives from, you know, maybe someone who's putting a lot of pictures on Instagram, but really their audience is majority male who are just liking the pictures. Like, we're looking for people who are having an engaged audience that is having discussions with them on Instagram and not just being like, yay, how cute, XOXO. Like, 
that are actually having meaningful conversations about topics that we might want to talk about. Everything from, you know, you know, serious topics to fun topics to lifestyle topics. And when you see the conversation, that's when it speaks to, oh, wow, as soon as this is put into long form video, they're going to be so curious to see that elaboration. Wow. That's interesting. So uh, you speak to 25 and above is really the key demographic. And what comes to my mind is YouTube is fantastic, but I imagine, I think Facebook, I maybe think Pinterest, there are other platforms out there that also probably have a, a really strong hold on this demographic. So what is your guys' approach with diversifying? And I guess maybe even tailoring content specifically for certain algorithms of a platform. Yeah, I mean, so we are we are on the platforms where my uh, our audience is. So we're on YouTube, we're on Facebook, Facebook Watch, and we're on Instagram and IGTV. So we're putting a full length episode across all three of those platforms. Uh, then on Facebook and Instagram, we're also putting more short form content uh, around. We haven't really gotten into Pinterest a lot, just because it's not still not a great vi platform for video hosting. And we are still at a core a video com a company and the content that's coming out is very video first. And so we found those platforms where our audience, our audience lives plus has that true core video capability are those three that I just mentioned. We're starting to do more TikTok. Um, and that's simply because over the past six months, the millennial ladies have showed up on the platform. And I would include myself in that because I now watch a lot of TikTok. <laughs> So we're certainly not trying to go after the 13 to 17 year olds. We're looking strongly at um, the uh, millennial woman who is now moving onto the platform. And we are, you know, like we do, we do, we do some tailoring of our content for the different platforms. I mean, once Facebook watch was like, we love watch time. I was like, okay, so now you're YouTube. Um, it got a lot easier. Right. <laughs> so we still put fairly long form content up on Facebook, IGTV as well. Um, but we're also making cut downs and doing stuff that's a little bit shorter and more optimized for those platforms at all. And obviously TikTok, you can't do that all. So those are all short form and, and optimized for that platform. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, God, thank you. That's, that's a great elaboration on that. And um, I think as a, a final topic here, going into your history, one thing I'm so fascinated about is... It seems as if Kin's focus and everything you've been talking about thus far is finding a smaller number of very engaging creators, ones that if we really put our focus here, they are going to deliver quite a significant return. Um, and I bring that up because I know the MCN model, which I know you used to work uh, and get the, God, the way you, you looked at me, maybe you knew I was going to bring up the MCN model, but uh, I think it was notoriously sort of casting such a wide net. Um, so it, it's interesting. So was it your, your experience in that sort of business model is what led you to realize that this would really be a fit? Um, I, I wonder if you could speak to the, uh, competing models and why you are now really putting the focus on the select talent. Uh, you know, look, uh, Kin has survived for so long because it, it never did the approach of, well, we just need to scale as big as possible. And then the money is going to magically appear from somewhere because... That is not that is not how the world works. It you know it worked for a couple t uh, uh, tech companies at one point. It does not work in digital media. We're currently are, uh, to make money. It's still fairly high touch at the end of the day. Um, so scaling turned out that it wasn't a magical you know like ticket to to getting a lot more money. 
Uh, you know, so Ken has survived all these ups and downs because, you know, they have always been very focused um, and have, have, have tried everything, experimented everything, but never got so far over their skis that when, you know, inevitably things shift in an ever-changing digital world that they weren't able to pivot with it. So that's, it's, you know, it's 2013 years. That's a very old digital media company. You know, I have worked with Ken for four to five years at this point, so I was not here for all that, all that. But I was never a fan of the MCN model. From early days, it's like the model never made sense. You're taking a split of a split. Like, and so a split of a split, like there's no way to support a team on that. The only way to support a team on that is to scale so huge that then the creator isn't getting any sort of value from it. So, like, nobody's happy. Like, you're not making enough money, and they're not getting any sort of value. So why would that business model continue to exist? So, you know, the entire world kind of came to that realization in 2016, 2017. So that model started to very quickly die away, and we, you know, we needed to pivot very quickly. Um, and, you know, we were able to find, you know, like, it really was a serious look at, like, where do we offer a lot of value? And we offer a lot of value to a celebrity creator. To a digital creator, like, they can do their own production. Like, you know, you know, like, they don't need the A to Z help. Like, they've done it all themselves. And, you know, like, but a celebrity account, a celebrity needs that skill set. They need the digital strategy. They need everything. And we can be a plug and play solution for that. So it was just kind of a perfect yin-yang of like, you need us, we need you, symbiosis, we're going to do this together. That really coalesced into a model that actually, you know, not to sound really surprised, but it is hard to find a model in digital that works. Like we have been all pounding away at this for 10 years plus looking for that magic thing. And there is no magic thing. It's still like, it's still hard work to be getting, you know, like, and you're still having to cobble together revenue from brand deals and other distribution deals and merch and all these things. Like, it's not, you know, like, there's still a, a long ways to go in the industry to truly get uh, something that's, you know, uh, really all there. But, you know, it's, this is, it's exciting to work on, finally see after 10 years something come together that's like, no, this actually works. This, this is actually viable. This is long-term viable. We have a business model here that's making money for us and it's making money for our talent. Yeah. And for you, I think specifically going to that, hey, helping them with A to Z, your career obviously really set you up for this. So I'd imagine right now, it's, it, do you see those who have come from the traditional Hollywood background as being uniquely capable of tackling this digital end of the industry, especially when it comes to walking a creator through every step of the process? I think, you know, it's looking at who you're dealing with. And I think that working with a traditional talent it helps having a background where you understand where they're coming from. It can be hard if you're if you're you've been pure play digital your entire career, especially if you've say like done digital since like high school. Like you get a lot of digital this is all they've lived and breathed. And it can be hard for them to understand the mentality of someone who's come from this monolithic system that has ways of doing things. And if you don't really understand that, you're not gonna understand the way uh, you know, traditional talent think and how they're going to need to be best supported to really make the most out of digital. So I, I do think that has been a good advantage to understand how the system and how talent thinks to be able to make them the most comfortable and have the best experience on, on these new platforms, which are scary and new. Yeah, 
Completely. It's it's crazy, especially if you're making that transition. Well, um, Gwen, as an ending note, I want to say your LinkedIn feed, you are you really have your finger on the pulse of what's happening on this industry. So um, I think that's especially relevant now with, I think, Snapchat released numbers that had a lot of people going, oh my God, what? Snapchat's so popular and- Back uh, from the dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or on that, you did mention Quibi, which I know you had uh, some Go90 thoughts on. Um, of course, why it wasn't gonna work. There's a lot of people forecasting this. So what is your advice to other people in this industry to really stay up to speed with what's happening and have a really accurate perception of what's happening outside of the industry bubble. Uh, when you say this industry, you mean digital or do you mean television? As a person who's kind of in both at this point. Boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I was thinking digital, but this could easily speak to both. Yeah, yeah. L look, I, I think that, you know, you need to, I, I feel like, we in the digital industry get very fo myopically focused on the digital industry. And you have to still retain a connection with the actual platforms and the actual content. This is something that nobody ever does. But every time I say, I like move my, my companies into a new platform, I spend time creating on that platform. So when I started learning YouTube, I spent three years YouTubing. Please do not go find it. It's embarrassing. I'm not a great host, but the, that wasn't the <laughs> point. The point was really getting to know the platform from the inside out. I'm, I'm on TikTok right now. Also, please don't go find it. I'm terrible, but that is not the point. I am not trying to be talent, but I'm trying to understand the platforms. And I feel like nobody in digital does that. They just kind of want to say, I'm now a TikTok expert. And I'm like, have, do you really know how these tools work? Have you tried using them, them yourself? And then you've got to watch the content. That's the one that mind boggles me is very few people in this industry actually watch the actual content. Every morning when I get ready, I have some digital platform on, whether that's YouTube, whether that's Twitch, whether that's TikTok. And I am watching the, I'm watching, I am very strategically watching a cross section across the platform of what everyone else is watching. Otherwise, you're, we're just gonna have, we're gonna recycle stale TV formats and you have a, a, you have millions of people out there experimenting for you that you can go and see what the freshest things are or you can kind of stay in this like, this stale bubble that we've all been in for the past hundred years. Completely. If you only rely on The Verge articles, uh, yeah, you're really not going to have that insight. Um, and it's funny, I, I think in the same vein, I, I can't enjoy YouTube or Twitch or anything of that nature like I once did because, and I imagine it's the same for you, you are always looking at it through that more critical lens, tying it back to your insights into the industry. Yeah. Um, well, awesome, Gwen. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat on all this. Uh, it's so valuable getting your insights. Uh, I guess, is there uh, an ending note, an ending uh, plug that I didn't get to really throw out there? Um, I would say, look, we live in probably the most interesting time for digital media right now. Uh, what's going on right now with the pandemic is going to change our viewing habits forever. And it's going to accelerate a change that is was already in the works, but it's going to happen much, much quicker much, much quicker. It's gonna happen more quickly. Uh, so like, this is the time, like there's never too late of a time to get into digital media, but if you wanna pay attention and you have some free time in your hand 
hands be diving into these platforms right now because it's just going to be infinitely more valuable later. Um, on my end, like I am trying to get better at the Twitter. So if anyone wants to come and hang out with me on Twitter and chat about digital media strategy, I would love to. Uh, and obviously, I'm as you pointed out, better at LinkedIn. So you can always follow me at LinkedIn, and I, I keep pretty on, on top of what's going on in the industry, and we'll always always share that. But you can always come to Twitter and hang out with me because that is one platform that uh, is on my goal list for 2020. There you go. Twitter, LinkedIn. Don't check out YouTube or TikTok per Gwen's request. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Gwen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tube Circuit, Exploring Digital Media. Please subscribe for more deep dives and conversations on the direction of digital media.